today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. For some people, they want to get off of their medication. They want to replace their medication either with a nutraceutical or just a food-first approach. But that's either going to be realistic for you or not realistic for you, depending on your health history and whatever else you're willing to do in order to achieve that goal. It's very highly individualized. And as a result, that conversation can shed a little bit of light for us on one, What are the pros and cons? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And how could we piece this together to help you understand the risk of what you're currently taking and whether or not it's appropriate or the benefits of maybe making some changes so that you can get your goal more efficiently? Hey guys, we have a really special episode for you today. Dr. Lara Zakaria is going to talk to us about overhauling your medicine cabinet. So did you know that you can actually use natural interventions to increase the effectiveness of your prescriptions and decrease the side effects? Did you know that some prescription medications can actually deplete nutrients? And did you know that a functional pharmacist can actually help you find and heal the root cause of a disorder in addition to taking medications to manage the symptoms? We've got that and more for you today. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. Lab testing is one essential way to find and treat the root cause of an illness. If you're a functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of different orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast was created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best place to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different lab companies in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up for your free account today. And while you're there, try out Rupa's newest tools, like the meal plan generator or lab shops, which allow you to seamlessly deliver online programs to your clients along with lab testing. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Zacharia, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. Me too. You are known as the foodie pharmacist, and you are a functional medicine and integrative pharmacist as well as a nutritionist. And I'm curious, what led you down this path? That's a very unique combination of skills to practice with. Thank you so much for saying that. I am actually really excited to see a flood of interest from pharmacists in the space of nutrition. It is really my pleasure to be able to speak a little bit more to what most people don't realize is actually, I think, an organic relationship between food as medicine and pharmaceuticals. And I think I also want to highlight for people that my journey, I think, is not unique. I think a lot of us came in a similar way where we became disillusioned by what we were seeing in our nine to five and started to slowly explore. About 15 or so years ago, I was doing a traditional CVS pharmacy job. I was your friendly CVS pharmacist. And I noticed the trend that a lot of my patients that were coming in that were really genuinely interested in improving their health, were asking all the right questions, were compliant on their medication, were doing all the right things, seemed to not getting better. And I think that sparked some curiosity for me at the time because I was under the impression that disease state management meant that as long as they did what they were supposed to do, they would improve their health. And that did not 
pan out to be the case, at least in my experience at the time. As I started to dig in a little bit more, I started to become more and more curious around the role of lifestyle, the role of nutrition. I was always really interested in nutrition. I grew up a dancer and an athlete. As a result of that, I was always interested in how what I put in my body impacted my performance. And I think that naturally just started led the way, that natural curiosity to finding out how I can maximize food and nutrition to help improve health outcomes. One day I looked around and noticed that every single book that I was surrounded with had something to do with nutrition. And it just made me realize that was something I was really passionate about. I started to delve into things like health coaching and I started to realize how we can build better habits and how those habits can ultimately impact our health. But ultimately, I realized I was really nerdy about the biochemistry and how those nutrients actually impacted our health outcomes directly. And as I started to nerd out and decided to go back to get my master's in nutrition, and that's what paved the way for me to transition to the dual practice of pharmacy and nutrition, I remember the day that I looked at the Krebs cycle from a nutrition perspective and realized that there were cofactors that impacted that Krebs cycle. I'd seen that Krebs cycle like a million times up until that point in my undergrad, in pharmacy school, in my high school bio class. But it wasn't until that moment that I realized I made this connection that, oh, wow, those nutrients are actually driving those enzymes. And that is what is directly impacting our health outcomes. When we look at that Krebs cycle and Go ahead and Google it. You, most of the time when you see a Krebs cycle, it's missing all those cofactors. We don't think we're really appreciating the foundational role of nutrition in those basic biochemical processes that drive life and drive metabolism and ultimately drive our health outcomes. That's eventually how I got into nutrition. This is where I started to make the connection that maybe it doesn't have to be all or nothing. At first, I was so disillusioned with where I came from. I was so disillusioned with the challenges when it came to pharmaceuticals and the side effects and the negative side of the healthcare system. And I finally came back around after the fact and realized that the two can live together synergistically. We can look at the way and take the best from what pharmaceuticals have to offer, the life-saving interventions, that sometimes they are low-cost interventions for a lot of populations and for a lot of people. Access to whole food isn't there. Sometimes people can't afford to eat an ideal diet. Sometimes people's environmental factors don't afford them to be able to make all the perfect decisions in order to reclaim their health. And very often, pharmaceuticals can jump in and help us skip the line a little bit and get ahead in order to protect them and potentially improve their health outcomes. Now, that doesn't mean that we let everybody off the hook and don't address the systems that cause that inequity. But to a certain extent, I think the two need to live together. There's also cases where folks need pharmaceuticals in order to survive. There's tons of cases, both acute and chronic, where the pharmaceuticals really make a life and death difference. I think my where I've arrived now is how do we use food, nutrition, and lifestyle to prevent the use of unnecessary medications, but then optimize the use of medications when they are necessary. And I think people at home are wondering, yeah, how can we? (laughs) You have a program called the Medicine Cabinet Overhaul, which is meant for the average American who wants to do exactly what you just said, learn to use nutrition where they can and ideally prevent the need for medication, but also 
use nutrition in a way that helps to reduce side effects and make their medications that they have to take work better. Tell us, what do people need to do a medicine cabinet overhaul? What's included in that program? We review what you're taking, both your pharmaceuticals as well as your nutraceuticals, being your vitamins, minerals, herbs that you might be taking. And we make sure that we're optimizing them and preventing any potential negative interactions. This is actually an idea that was sparked from a brown bag concept that is very common in community pharmacies where you can bring a brown bag filled with your medications. You bring it into the pharmacy and the pharmacist can review it to make sure that it's something that you should still be taking. If it's expired, can identify. A lot of times people will move their medications from one bottle to another and now you no longer know what's in that bottle anymore. People might be wondering if it's safe to take two medications at the same time or how to best space them or time them. That brown bag is a really central component, a key way that a community pharmacist can help to reduce potential side effects or risks or negative outcomes when it comes to pharmaceutical use. Why not take that same exact tried and true concept and translate it to an integrative functional medicine approach, especially as we know that the use of herbals and nutraceuticals has grown exponentially. We're talking about industry that has grown, especially post-pandemic, several fold. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And look, there are a lot of pros and cons to that. And on one hand, I really appreciate that folks are diving into using more natural and holistic approaches to empower their own health outcomes. And that's fantastic. However, if they're also taking medications or they're avoiding really vital medications, that can then cause negative outcomes that could potentially worsen their risk factors. And that's what we want to avoid. There's a survey that was done a couple of years ago that stated that 30% of Americans are using at least one herbal supplement. And 25% of those herbal supplement users are also taking medications. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty significant, right? Here's the thing though. of those supplement users do not tell their prescriber or their physician that they're on that herbal supplement. That means that when that doctor goes in and is evaluating them and checking and making sure that they should be on that medication or making any adjustments, they're not taking into consideration that somebody's on an herb at the same time that could be impacting their potential risk that could potentially change how they approach management of that medication. I think it's really important, number one, that we educate, number one, providers in general on the appropriate use of herbals and nutraceuticals to avoid avoid any safety concerns there. We also need to change the narrative as professionals because very often a lot of us that are trained allopathically have a negative stigma when it comes to nutraceuticals. We often are dismissive and I think that plays into the reason why a lot of patients aren't as open to talking to us about nutraceuticals to begin with. And that might be causing some of that angst in terms of those conversations and contributing to that drastic figure. And then the third piece here is for us to really rally together as collaborative, integrative practitioners and leverage all the resources that we have on hand. As a physician or primary care provider, you may not have the time or maybe you don't have the experience. Maybe you're new to the nutraceutical piece and you're not really sure how it fits in to your management of that case. Maybe that's where we call in a pharmacist that is trained in that. We're already trained on avoiding drug interactions. We're trained on medication management and disease state management. We layer in this training around nutraceuticals and how they fit in 
we can really work together and collaborate and not only improve potential outcomes, but reduce the risk of these interactions. Can you give our folks at home an example of a drug-herb interaction that exemplifies the dangers that can happen when people combine the two and their provider doesn't know? Absolutely. I'm going to give you an example, not only of a potential risk, and I'm also going to give you an example of a potential benefit because very often we don't think about the potential synergy of using herbs with pharmaceuticals either. The classic example in terms of drug-herb interactions is St. John's Ward. Everybody who has had any medical training is probably nodding their head because they remember how much we were warned against St. John's wort and its potential risk. Now, St. John's wort is an herb that many of you are probably aware of is used for depression. Part of its mechanism mimics an SSRI or serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, increases the amount of saturation of serotonin. As a result, that increased serotonin, that's our happy neurotransmitter, helps us to feel better and can alleviate the symptoms of depression. That sounds very similar to that medication class, antidepressants, SSRIs. The biggest risk and the biggest interaction is St. John's work with another similar mechanism like an SSRI, say like a Prozac or something like that, where you can potentially get serotonin syndrome and as a result have this way too much serotonin that could be really dangerous. There are some other risks as well that have to do with the way the body metabolizes medication and the shared metabolism pathways of the St. John's Ward. In other words, you don't do as efficient of a job getting rid of the medications, which then leads to toxicity because it's being occupied by the St. John's Ward. It's like being on a really long line at the amusement park and there's way too many people ahead of your line. As a result, those medications become toxic to the body. There's a few classes of medication, anti hypertensives, for example, you can have interactions with anticoagulant. There's a few medications that share that pathway. I know birth control is one of them as well. I was going to bring up birth control separately because birth control, the issue becomes less about toxicity and more about the reduced efficacy of the birth control. And that becomes a different risk factor. Birth control, the interaction with St. John's is less about the toxicity risk and more about the potential for reduced efficacy of the oral contraceptive. That said, there's a whole long list of them. This is why this is a big topic when it comes to the example that most of us get when we have our pharmacology lectures in terms of the potential for risk when it comes to herbs and pharmaceuticals. The problem with St. John's Worth and this interaction is very few people are willing to run a trial to test how badly these interactions are going to actually end up in actual practice. We don't have a lot of really solid data that tells us, hey, when you pair St. John's Worth with XYZ medication, it's going to cause this risk at this rate. And this is the potential effect. And you can make then a clinical judgment based on actual data, which is the way we actually do most of our interaction recommendations is based on the relative risk of that interaction is going to have a negative effect. When it comes to pharmaceuticals, very often there are interactions that occur and we make a clinical judgment sometimes, even if there is an interaction, that we're still going to use that medication because the benefit outweighs the potential risk. And we monitor very differently in order to prevent any potential issues from the use of those two medications together. 
when it comes to herbals, we don't have the same data. And as a result, we can't make the same clinical judgments when we see a potential interaction between an herb and a pharmaceutical. Very often we err on the side of caution and we avoid those. Now, if you look at the breakdown of some of those interactions, one, you'll see the level of evidence of the interactions is usually very weak. At best, it's a case study, whereas an example of something that happened once and they published it in a report as a warning. Very often, the majority of the data on the interactions is in vitro data or animal study data or theoretical based on the shared mechanism. We don't have a lot of examples or there's not extensive studies about it. We're just basing it, making a best judgment call based on what we understand about the shared mechanisms and the potential overlap and the potential risk. That opens up a lot of room for clinical judgment. And I'm not trying to say that we should be giving out St. John's wort alongside these medications that we know could potentially be an interaction. But what I'm saying is that there is sometimes going to be room and for clinical judgment when it comes to lower levels of risk and where the benefit outweighs the risk, especially when there's lacking data or the side effect itself is not a major side effect. For example, if you've got somebody who's taking an SSRI, I wouldn't give them St. John's Wort. That doesn't make sense to me to duplicate the mechanism when we know that I wouldn't do that with a pharmaceutical. I wouldn't give two pharmaceuticals with the same mechanism of action. That's a good basic rule of thumb. But maybe when it comes to something like a statin, where the relative risk of giving the two together might be something that is something we can monitor. And there's very low evidence that interaction actually pans out and can translate from what we know in terms of animal studies to what we know in terms of human studies. And the potential benefit of giving somebody St. John's wort along with a statin might outweigh the risk. And that may not be true in every single case, but I think it starts to crack open the door a little bit on using clinical judgment when it comes to making decisions on how to couple an herbal with a pharmaceutical. Now, you mentioned there's instances in where you can actually use them together and use that interaction to your benefit. My favorite example is how we could potentially use polyphenols or anti-inflammatory polyphenols like resveratrol, curcumin, to potentially reduce the use and the side effects of NSAIDs. NSAIDs, of course, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, major class of medication used to control pain, but come with a long list of side effects, including potential for GI issues, ulcerations, et cetera. And we always know when we're managing somebody's pain, we want to get their pain as low as possible. We want to keep them mobile. We want to get their quality of life up. We also want to make sure that they're active because we know most people, the more active they are, not only does that impact a lot of different health outcomes, but also can impact their pain level as well. Very often, the more they move, the less pain that they're in. It becomes this catch-22 where we give them more NSAIDs in order to get their pain under control, but now we're increasing their likelihood of having potential side effects, whether it be kidney issues, GI issues, et cetera. A few researchers have actually conducted studies on using natural anti-inflammatories, things like cat's claw, polyphenols, resveratrol, curcumin, et cetera, to help to reduce the need for NSAIDs. Now, 
on one hand, we could absolutely use them instead of an NSAID. However, very often the NSAIDs are very effective and they're needed for that person in order to be able to get through their day. What we found is you can actually use them together and you could benefit from a synergistic relationship. Most of the RCTs that I've seen have actually shown not only do we get better pain management, patients report improved and reduced pain outcomes subjectively. We've also seen objectively that their inflammation markers are actually reduced more than the NSAID by itself. Using the two together can both objectively and subjectively improve their inflammation markers as well as their pain perception. And many of these trials also went on to go look at the side effect profiles. How much did they need to rely on the NSAIDs and how, as a result of that, did they experience any of the side effects associated with NSAIDs. And very often, because of the reduction of the need for the NSAID, we saw a reduction in some of the side effects and the GI symptoms or the use of then secondary medication like H2 blockers in order to manage their GI issues. To me, that's such a powerful example of using herbals and food in combination with pharmaceuticals in order not only to improve outcomes that potentially reduce the risk. Absolutely. Can you mention those four interventions? Again, you said cat's claw. The two RCT trials that come to mind were one that looked at resveratrol, and I believe it was with Mobic in combination with Mobic. And the other one that I have in mind is, I believe, naproxen with curcumin. And those are two specific RCT trials that looked, had a control group that was just the NSAID by itself, and then it compared it with the use of NSAID in combination with the polyphenol. And both of those looked, again, not only at their reported pain threshold, but they also looked at inflammatory markers, which is why I thought they were actually pretty powerful way to show that, yeah, not only is this subjectively improving people's health outcomes, but as we know, those inflammatory markers not only drive pain, but could also create complications for other inflammation-driven chronic diseases as well. It has a really powerful impact when combined all together. But there are other anti-inflammatory herbs that we can think of. Cat's claw comes to mind, bromelain, for example. All of these herbs that have a anti-inflammatory benefit that we could potentially safely sprinkle in lieu of NSAIDs or in combination with NSAIDs when you need it. I love that. And it's a lot of those nutrients or herbal components that you mentioned it remind me of things I've learned about that come from food. Like bromelain, for example, can come from pineapple. Absolutely. Bromelain can come from pineapple. In my experience, it takes a lot of pineapple eating to get the <laughs> anti-inflammatory benefit that you would get. But essentially what bromelain does is it breaks down proteins. And by breaking down that protein, it sits at the top of the domino effect. The protein can't stimulate an inflammatory response. That could be helpful in inflammation, particular inflammation that is triggered by GI triggers. I think even more powerful, I think when you're going back to your point about food potentially having this therapeutic effect, when I think of the connection between food and anti-inflammatories, I think of a lot of the traditional herbal spices. I think of ginger and turmeric, herbs like rosemary and curry, things that we can add to our food that can help to reduce inflammation and that generally are really safe to use in combination with pharmaceuticals. Generally speaking, when in doubt and you're not sure if there's going to be an interaction between a high-dose 
herbal, the food derivative of that, just using it in the diet could be a good option. For example, if you're not sure if using an extract of ginger is safe or appropriate, usually using ginger in the diet as a tea or as a dried spice or herb can be a good alternative. And what's interesting about culinary herbs is that because they come in their whole food matrix form, and because we're often eating it layered on top of other foods, that combination works synergistically again to help to reduce inflammation and, again, starts to drive the healing and to improve some of those drivers of disease by neutralizing some of the oxidative stress, by acting as antioxidants, by reducing inflammation, by supporting detoxification pathways. Oh my gosh. I think people are wondering, how can I walk into a CVS and find someone to talk to me about this? Because this is amazing. This is a truly holistic view of someone's issue. You're not just looking at like, how do I drive inflammation down using a medicine, but how do I use what they're eating and what supplements they're taking to not only drive down their inflammation, but reduce the amount of medications that they require that could potentially cause side effects. So then they get the best of all worlds. We need this And shout out to the CVS pharmacist. Look, I have been that CVS pharmacist. I've worked at a couple different chains. I've worked at independent pharmacies. I've done all of that. And they are working their tails off. Do me a favor and go in and say thanks to your local chain and community pharmacist because they are doing the best that they can. But like a lot of healthcare providers, they don't have a lot of time. They have a lot of metrics and rules that they have to follow. We're also regulated by legal regulation. So there are laws that restrict a lot of what we can and can't do. And then on top of that, there are insurance companies and what they will pay for and won't pay for. So a lot of times the pharmacist sort of is the bearer of bad news and very often not only don't have the time to really have a long, extensive conversation, but often most healthcare providers that are trained allopathically don't have access to a lot of this training and a lot of this information in order to guide you and to help you use the best of both worlds and to guide you on how to eat in this way, the way we talk about lifestyle medicine and the incorporation of nutraceuticals and traditional herbs and things like that. That takes some extra level of training and knowledge. And my hope is that one day all of allopathic medicine has this level of training and we can all be speaking to this and serving our patients at this level. But at this point, I think, again, seeking out healthcare practitioners, pharmacists, health and other healthcare providers that are trained and understand these concepts, you're going to be able to combine those two. And I'm hoping that something like this medicine cabinet overhaul can help us to set the tone and provide a framework for people to be able to find that service and for other practitioners to step in and use a similar template in order to serve their patients. It's an extra thing you can do. On top of what you're already doing with your own pharmacist, this sounds like some way that you can go deeper and have more time than what you might be getting already. What does it look like when someone comes to see you versus maybe a regular few-minute appointment that they would get with their pharmacist? What's the difference? The difference is if we're talking about a medicine cabinet overall, for example, we're going to be talking about everything that you're taking. You're going to send me your information in advance. So I'm going to have a list of what you're taking. We're going to do a brief medical history so I understand the context of why you're taking what you're taking. And we're going to look at both your nutraceuticals as well as your pharmaceuticals. And then I usually do a little bit of research in advance to make sure that I'm caught up to speed. I gather all the information that I can to understand what's working and what's not working. And then the most important part of this is actually having a conversation with you. We're not just going to base it on what you submitted, but we're going to talk about how you're feeling, what's working, what's not working, and where your goals are 
are? What do you actually want to achieve? For some people, their goal is to have complete remission of symptoms. For some people, it's just to have a little bit of an improvement in a particularly bothersome side effect. For some people, they want to get off of their medication. They want to replace their medication either with a nutraceutical or just a food first approach. But that's either going to be realistic for you or not realistic for you, depending on your health history and whatever else you're willing to do in order to achieve that goal. It's very highly individualized. And as a result, that conversation can shed a little bit of light for us on one, what are the pros and cons? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And how could we piece this together to help you understand the risk of what you're currently taking and whether or not it's appropriate or the benefits of maybe making some changes so that you can get your goal more efficiently? It sounds like it's probably at least a half hour. Yeah, they range from 30 minutes to 60 minutes. You can actually choose. Usually that we'll make a recommendation based on the quantity of things that we have to discuss. If you've got a long list of things, we're going to need a little bit more time, but I let people opt into either 30 or 60. And after 30 to 60 minutes, you have a very holistic plan, which is great. Absolutely. And I know you're looking a lot at diet too. We talked a lot about the herbal interactions with pharmaceuticals, but there are some nutrient interactions as well. Can you teach us about those? What might surprise some folks about the way their pharmaceuticals interact with the nutrients they're consuming in their diet? I'm going to do this again, where we're going to look at both the negative as well as the positive so that we get a really full picture. And I'm going to use some really simple examples just so that we're all on the same page on how this works. Thyroid is a great example. A lot of people are taking levothyroxine, which is a hormone replacement therapy for people who are hypothyroid or need more thyroid hormone. And levothyroxine is a T4 that needs to convert over to T3 in order for the T3 then to go do its job and interact in the cell and do all the metabolic things that it needs to do. Now, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one is that in order for you to fully absorb your level of thyroxine, you have to take it away from food. So one of the primary food drug interactions here is that it must be taken on an empty stomach. That's because levothyroxine is a diva. She is a queen. She wants to be taken by herself. She has to have her core appearance without anybody around her disrupting her. As a result, a lot of people who are taking levothyroxine are probably nodding and saying, yep, I have to take it away from my coffee. I can't be eating my breakfast and taking my levothyroxine. Some people even set the alarm earlier to take it way before they wake up so it does not disrupt anything else that they might eat or drink afterwards. Water is fine. That's not an issue. That's one kind of drug-food interaction that we can think of. Another kind of drug-herb interaction would be where it might be synergistic for you to actually take a particular herb with a particular medication. Another example, the first one that comes to mind for me is methotrexate. One of the mechanisms of actions of methotrexate is to deplete your folate. Folate or folic acid is really primarily important for a long list of things. It's probably most famous for its role in methylation, but it's a primary B vitamin that we need for everything. As a result, we always recommend that you take folic acid or folate when you take methotrexate. It's just standard prescription and we use the two together. That's an example of using nutrients in combination with the drug in order to potentially avoid a side effect. Another interaction that we can think about to just also help with the synergy example is iron in combination with vitamin C. Iron, although we think of that as a nutrient, very often folks who have chronic anemia have to take iron consistently. For them, I would consider that a medication level or prescription level need. And the best way for them to take it very often is to couple it 
with vitamin C in order to help to improve the absorption of that iron. There's a couple of other things with iron optimization. It has to do with your microbiome. That has to do with your ability to absorb nutrients in general in your gut. If you have issues with your pH balance, there's also the mucosa layer of your GI that could interrupt or disrupt your ability to absorb iron, whether it be from your food or from your supplements. There's a lot that we could do to help optimize that. And very often that might come down to your eating habits, how quickly you chew your food, whether you're chewing thoroughly or not, whether or not maybe you're drinking too much water along with your food that might dilute some of your digestive enzymes. We can also start thinking about the role of fibers and polyphenols. And if you're eating a diversity of colorful foods to help support a healthy, robust microbiome, if there are foods or there are triggers, whether they be stress or diet related, that might be increasing your risk for, let's say, intestinal permeability or leaky gut. All of these things could disrupt your ability to absorb that nutrient, that one nutrient that might lead you to need to take a supplement in order to keep from having chronic anemia. You could start to see when you zoom out to diet that it's not always the simple, okay, if you just take vitamin C with your iron, that should solve the problem. Sometimes it's the dietary habits and the environment that also play a role in the potential risk there. That makes complete sense. And I'm glad people like you are out here educating folks on this type of thing. You talk a lot about thyroid. And you mentioned something earlier about T4 being converted to T3 and that affecting a cell's metabolism. Can you explain to folks a little bit about that? Because I find a lot of people are interested in thyroid hormone, but they think that the TSH that their doctor is running when they check their thyroid is their thyroid hormone. Actually, there's a couple different types. Yeah. Can you walk our audience through that? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the TSH. So the standard of care is to look at TSH levels, which is thyroid simulating hormone, and to use that as a surrogate marker for understanding how effectively or efficiently your thyroid is actually making thyroid hormone. And the idea is that if the thyroid stimulating hormone is high, that means your thyroid must not be producing enough thyroid hormone and therefore low or hypothyroid. Or if your TSH is low, that must mean your thyroid is producing too much thyroid hormone and therefore you must be hyperthyroid or too high. And that makes good sense. That is some basic physiology. I'm behind it. I love these smart ways of assessing for function. The problem is that it's an indirect measure of something that we can not only clearly measure directly, but we can see how in our patients, a lot of people fall through the cracks here. People all constantly come to me telling me that they're you know, taking their levothyroxine. They seem to be taking it at the right time. We play with the timing. We ensure that there's not any interactions with the foods or their coffee or anything like that that could be reducing its efficacy. They've played around with the dosing and they still just don't feel good. They still feel like it's not working or they're feeling overstimulated. They nudge the dose up and they don't feel good. They nudge it down. They still don't feel good. Nothing seems to be working. And that's because if you're all you're doing is tracking the TSH and maybe at best getting a reflex T4 and tracking the T4, you're missing a few things. Number one, again, TSH is an indirect measure. It's telling us how much we're signaling back to the thyroid to produce thyroid hormone. It's not necessarily telling us, hey, this is how much T4 there is and this is how much we're converting to active T3. Number two, The TSH itself can be influenced by other factors. For example, inflammation. Inflammation can actually throw off your TSH level. And as a result, now you've got a 
artificially deflated TSH that may have been out of range and may have indicated that there's actually a hypothyroid issue happening. And a lot of people have chronic inflammation. And it's not uncommon for folks who have thyroid irregularities to also have inflammation at the same time. Mm -hmm. The other piece of this is the range of the TSH is really, really wide. And a lot of functional practitioners will tell you that even when they are evaluating TSH, they're looking at a much narrower range because it's just too wide. And so it gives too much room for flexibility. It gives too much room for the potential for us to miss a potential issue with thyroid hormone production. Now, the other piece of this is that T4 itself is the precursor. It's the most common thyroid in circulation, but it's not the active thyroid. What happens is that your cells, when they need to do a metabolic thing, they'll signal out back to the thyroid and send over some thyroid hormone. We need to get some metabolism happening here. As a result, the thyroid hormones will get into what I call the thyroid uber or the thyroid hormone binding globulin. And that is essentially a protein that takes it over to the cell. The cell then takes it in. Once the thyroid enters the right keypad code, it can get into the cell and it can do its thing. A couple of things have to happen here in order for all that to happen and for metabolism to respond to that thyroid hormone. Number one, we have to at some point convert that T4 to active T3, which that active T3 needs some nutrients in order to be completely activated and to be ready to punch in the correct keypad to get into the door. You need certain nutrients like zinc, vitamin A, vitamin E. Stress has a really big impact on the conversion to active T3. You could potentially accidentally make too much inactive T3, which is called reverse T3. Inflammation, again, can have an impact on the efficacy of that production of active T3. And things like Insulin sensitivity can also impact your active T3 and how bioactive it is in terms of, again, entering the keypad code on the mm-hmm. cell. The other piece of this too is that Uber, that protein that takes that thyroid hormone from the thyroid over to its destination. And if you've heard of estrogen dominance and you've heard of sex hormone binding globulin, this sort of works in a similar way where you can have too much of these proteins, too many Ubers essentially carrying around a bunch of thyroid passengers. They're never actually dropping them off at their destination. They're constantly binded and they're not enough hormones to actually get out of the, the Uber and punch in the keypad and get into the cell to do their job. That could be both due to estrogen dominance or any of the factors that impact estrogen dominance can cross over to thyroid binding globulin as well. And all that whole picture combined between the balance of some of your other hormones like estrogen, insulin can impact your thyroid production and stress It's like the circling shark around the entire conversation because not only can it impact some of these other peripheral factors, but has a direct impact on the production of active T3 as well. If someone's thinking, I want to comprehensively evaluate my thyroid because on thyroid medication, I've heard that my TSH is fine. There are some other biomarkers that they could ask their doctor to check. Can you just quickly summarize that for someone who might have their pen and paper out and they want to write it down? Absolutely. I put these into categories. I'm going to talk about the direct thyroid markers, and then I'm going to talk about some of the other markers that I usually will recommend at the same time. Number one, I don't throw away TSH. I like to track it, even though by itself it's not very useful. I think that in combination and getting a historical record of the TSH could be helpful as you're monitoring and managing your thyroid. But we're also going to get a total T4, a free T4, a total T3, a free T3, 
and a reverse T3. And if there is a chance that you could potentially be on the autoimmune continuum, if we suspect, or even if we're just screening to be super, super sure, I always recommend also getting the antibodies. And I usually include anti-TPO as well as anti-thyroxine to at least annually check those. Even if you're not currently diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, the number one cause of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition. And the way that we treat primary hypothyroidism is going to be a little bit different than the way that we treat an autoimmune-driven hypothyroidism. It's really important for us to understand the difference there. That's the thyroid piece. And that's just part of my general thyroid screening recommendations. From there, I also like to check for anemias. I look at nutritional testing. And then I look at general metabolic markers, like basic, boring CBC and CMP, frankly. You get a lot of information from just a basic lipid panel. For example, elevations in LDL, especially if everything else looks okay, could sometimes point us to a primary hypothyroidism issue, for example. Mm. Constant elevations in triglycerides and LDLs, even though everything else looks okay, could also be a clue that there might be a metabolic issue. Remember, because insulin resistance could be a driver of some of these issues with hypothyroidism or suboptimal thyroid. Looking at just a basic fasting blood sugar and A1C and a fasting insulin could give you some clues if there's maybe a connection between the two. And then of course, the nutrients. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes between hypothyroid symptoms and iron deficiency anemia. They look really Mm -hmm. similar. And in addition to getting a CBC and looking at some of those markers to identify if there's any potential anemias, I also like to get a full iron panel. And that includes a serum iron, a ferritin, TIVC, and a percent iron sat. And I like to look at those. And again, I like to have a historical record of those. I can't tell you the number of times where there was a jump or a dip in something and we could trace it back because we had a historical record and we could see, ah, this starts to align with certain symptoms. This might've driven that change. And that really can help us put together the picture so that we can better identify what's causing somebody's symptoms and then address it directly. And then the other piece of this is nutritional testing. A lot of people think that you have to jump right to functional testing and you absolutely can. There's a lot of amazing tests. One of my favorite tests, organic acid testing, or Genova has what I call the Cadillac of tests, like the NutraVal. Love all of these options for people. Love some of those really high level tests. But even just getting some basic lab work, just looking at vitamin D level at least a couple times a year. I like to get it in the spring and in the fall because in the spring tends to be when it's the lowest and the fall tends to be when it's the highest because we're coming out of the winter and out of the summer respectively. Such a simple test to get and very often we just don't see that consistently. Mm -hmm. You can get a vitamin A, a vitamin E level. Those are pretty usually pretty easy to get. An RBC magnesium is really important, not a serum magnesium. That's too tightly controlled for us to track actual magnesium need. By the time the serum magnesium is off, we're probably looking at some other electrolyte imbalances and a more serious acute condition that's happening. But an RBC magnesium can help us track if there's a more chronic need for magnesium. Uh, You could do also a zinc, you can do an RBC zinc, tracking selenium and iodine, particularly for people who are on that either primary hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's spectrum, we should probably be doing some at least annual check-ins on those nutrient levels. I love that. Guys, if you know someone with a thyroid issue who feels like they're taking meds, they're seeing a doctor, but they don't feel great, send them this podcast and have them talk with their doctor about this test panel. And then they could also enroll in Dr. Zachary's program and meet with her themselves. And she can do this deep dive for them. But 
I think it's a very holistic approach to the thyroid that I don't see a lot of clinicians doing because they don't have the time maybe or the education. But I want to circle back to something you said. You mentioned selenium. You mentioned iodine. And folks at home, if you haven't done a nutrient analysis of your diet, if you've never plugged a few days into either my fitness pal or chronometer to see how much iodine and how much selenium are you consuming routinely, I think folks would be surprised that it's actually really hard to get these nutrients unless you eat, for iodine, a lot of seaweed or seafood. And then for selenium, a lot of Brazil nuts. And there are a lot of people who are at risk of deficiencies of these nutrients that your thyroid actually needs to make thyroid hormone that turns on your metabolism. Checking for those nutrients is brilliant because so many people are at risk. Yeah, what do you chat with when you're explaining to folks like, yeah, why do they need to worry about iodine for their thyroid? (laughs) It's so funny that you mentioned selenium and Brazil nuts. I actually hate Brazil nuts. I know for a fact I'm not getting enough selenium from my diet. That's one reason for me to track that closely. And we also know selenium, not only is it needed for our thyroid function, it's also part of how we make glutathione, which is our master antioxidant and part of our detoxification pathway. Super important. Iodine is really interesting. We know that folks who eat a lot of seafood, particularly to your point, folks that are deliberately eating more sea vegetables tend to have better amounts of iodine. And in fact, iodine was one of those nutrients that a long time ago we realized was deficient in our population, particularly folks that are inland. And we started to add it to our salt. And all of our table salt has been iodized up until this point. But recently with the trend to shift away from table salt to sea salt, we no longer are eating iodized salt anymore. And I'm not here to argue that we should be having table salt. That's a different conversation. I think there's a lot of mineral benefits from having, whether it be Himalayan salt or whole sea salt, there's a lot of great benefits from having that synergy of those minerals together with the sodium. However, we're very clearly now working a reliable source for iodine. In addition to that, even if you're not completely switched over to these sea salts, if you are salt restricted, maybe you are hypertensive or you're salt sensitive, and so you purposely are avoiding salt, you also might be missing out on that iodine as well. It's not always appropriate to supplement iodine. And I feel the same way about iodine as I do on iron. For the record, we shouldn't be supplementing without actually tracking what our levels are and if we have a need for it. There are cases where folks have over-supplemented iodine, for example, and pushed thyroid issue, particularly a thyroiditis or a Hashimoto's, they weren't aware that they had the issue and as a result created this negative immune response. It's very important that we don't overdo iodine. That said, food sources of iodine are always going to be helpful. There is so many other health benefits from eating, whether it be sea vegetables or seafood in general, that's going to help you get not only the iodine, but you're going to get a whole slew of other nutrients at the same time. For example, a lot of shellfish is really high in zinc, which is another nutrient that you need to fully activate thyroid hormone. And we know that whenever we eat foods in their natural whole sources, we get the entire food matrix, which is just brilliantly designed to help offset the absorption of nutrients. We don't get too much of one thing and not enough of the other. It's like work synergistically and biologically with our digestive system, with our microbiome, and with our body's ability to absorb what it needs. We have certain mechanisms that will upregulate certain pathways when we're in need of something that help us absorb more 
and absorb less of something else. For example, iron competes with calcium for absorption. There is a transporter that is upregulated when we need more iron. There's a couple of things besides the calcium that can compete with that iron transporter, but we're just going to keep it simple here, that when you need more iron, your body upregulates these transporters, like more tunnels open up and and it'll select for iron more frequently. Even if you're eating a food that has both calcium and iron in it, it'll selectively try to pull the iron out because it realizes you physiologically have a higher need for that. Again, it gets a little bit more complicated with things like dysbiosis or digestive disruptions or anything like that. But basically trying to help you paint this picture that when you eat the foods collectively, you're going to get the balance of the nutrients that you need in order to exert its physiological effect. Whereas if we supplement, sometimes we could over supplement and throw that off balance and that starts to then impact our health, not because we're deficient, but because we're out of balance. 100%. This is why people really need to work with an expert when they're trying to build a plan where they're using nutrients and herbs and pharmaceuticals together and why I'm so happy you've got your program. Minerals are stored, guys. At home, you might have heard a practitioner say to you like, B vitamins, you can't really take too much of those. Don't worry about it. And that's for the most part true. B vitamins are water soluble. We don't really store them. You pee them out. If you take too much, your body just gets rid of them pretty easily. That's not the case with some of the nutrients we've talked about today, iodine, selenium, magnesium, fat-soluble vitamins, ADEK. You really do need to take the right amount at the right time and stop when you're replete. This is why testing for those nutrients is so critical because you want to see, do I actually need these and how much and for how long? And then test again to see, can I be done? Can I take a break? so that you don't wind up with other side effects like Dr. Zacharia has so brilliantly illustrated for us. Thank you for pointing that out. Can I give an example of that piece that just jumped to mind? Because that is such an important piece and I find this really interesting. So vitamin D we know is the sunshine vitamin. We are probably all pretty aware how important it is on very multiple levels on how important it can be for a lot of different health outcomes. It could help reduce inflammation. It can help us balance other hormones, et cetera. Vitamin D needs to be taken earlier in the day to sort of mimic when we would have actually made our own vitamin D. If you're supplementing vitamin D and you take it later in the day, it can actually impact your circadian rhythm. And because at night, when it's dark, you're supposed to be making melatonin, not vitamin D. There's actually a really interesting research on how vitamin D might impact the release of melatonin. And if you take vitamin D too late in the day, you might actually be disrupting your melatonin production. How interesting is that? That's fascinating. I did not know that. Super cool research that's coming out from some colleagues of ours, Dr. Deanna Minnick comes to mind as she's been talking a lot about melatonin and this kind of offset, this balancing act between the nighttime hormone and the daytime hormone, which is melatonin and vitamin D respectively. And then another interesting thing that sort of speaks to the synergy is magnesium. You need to have adequate amounts of magnesium to optimize your vitamin D. If we're tracking magnesium and we're tracking and assessing your diet for sources of magnesium, very often we have to supplement both vitamin D and magnesium. Most people need to supplement in order to really optimize their levels. And I will say if there's two vitamins or nutrients that I feel are safe to supplement, I would say it's those two. And very often I'll see folks who keep coming back with low vitamin D levels, despite the fact that they're supplementing pretty robustly with vitamin D. But as soon as we get their magnesium levels up, that shoots right up and it gets into our therapeutic rate. Another great example of that synergistic effect. You mentioned statins earlier. And this is one of the things I see you talking with folks about a lot. 
that there are nutrients that you need to consider when you're taking a statin. Can you explain to us what are statins? What are those nutrients? Yeah. Talk to our folks. Statins are a very common, well-known cholesterol medication. They're used to help bring down people's cholesterol and they can be used to help reduce somebody's cardiovascular risk from heart attack and stroke. Very commonly used and there's a lot of controversy on their use and whether or not they're safe, whether or not they're always necessary. The truth of it is that there's probably nuance. There's probably a lot of people taking statins that maybe don't need them and could possibly benefit just as well from changing their diet, improving their lifestyle. But there's also a large number of people that the statins are actually very protective for them. And not only are they helping to reduce their lipid number, but there's also some evidence that the mechanism of statins can help to reduce some of the inflammation that's associated with increasing the risk of the particle quality as well. It really depends. And we're still starting to understand the genetic impact of the statins along with the potential risk factor of the individual and why certain populations of people who take statins do really well and others still suffer from cardiovascular events despite the fact that they're on the right amount of statin. And I think this is where there's opportunity for us to speak with a little bit more nuance. Number one, you don't have to give the statin by itself. We could couple it with lifestyle changes, dietary modifications. We could improve stress management, sleep, movement, et cetera, to help reduce all the aspects that impact cardiovascular risk. This is also a great opportunity for us to couple herbs and nutraceuticals. One of the most well-known, I think, drug-induced nutrient depletions is CoQ10 with statins. Really well-established in the literature. I can't say that about a lot of drug-induced nutrient depletions, but we do know that statins help can reduce the amount of circulating CoQ10. CoQ10 is an antioxidant. It's part of our ability to make energy. It's part of our electron transport chain. And it's thought that when we deplete that CoQ10, we reduce some of the antioxidant capacity. And if we can't make as much energy from our electron transport chain, that might be part of what's contributing to the risk factors associated with the side effects as well as with the negative outcomes with statins. Really simple intervention is to couple CoQ10 along with the statin or at the very minimum to monitor it and make sure that it's not dropping too low. Dr. Mark Houston talks about using one to 300 milligrams of CoQ10 with statins to help to offset the potential depletion. And we're not aware of any negative impact of using CoQ10 regularly other than the cost. It can be really expensive to add CoQ10 for people that might have financial constraints that may not always be realistic for those folks. But that's a really great, I think, straightforward example of a DIND. But then I would say, what about some of synergistic properties of other herbs or nutraceuticals or nutrients that we can now think about when we think about statins? Okay, CoQ10. Absolutely. What about leveraging the anti-inflammatory benefits of curcumin or ginger? Those, whether they be in food form or whether it be in supplement form, can not only help to support the mitochondria and help that CoQ10 production, but also reduce inflammation in general. And we know inflammation is a major driver of cardiovascular events. So mm-hmm. that's a win to me. Another great idea might be using magnesium. Magnesium has multiple benefits. It's a relaxant, number one, so it can help to support that HPA access and the stress drivers, but it also can help to reduce the stress on the vasculature, which especially if somebody has hypertension, could increase the risk for cardiovascular events. It's also 
can help to reduce insulin resistance and improve insulin sensitivity. And very often, insulin resistance or diabetes are part of the risk factors that contribute to cardiovascular mm -hmm. events. You start thinking now a little bit wider. We could think about the direct implications of a drug-induced nutrient depletion like CoQ10. But if we zoom out a little bit, we can see how we can use some of these nutraceuticals, whether they be food-based or whether we supplement them, to really get a whole picture and to address some of the parallel factors that impact our statin patients' risk. Again, guys, if you know anyone on a statin, send them this and then send them to Dr. Zachariah's website, <laughs> please, which we're going to have you give folks at the end so they know where to get more information from you. Because one of the things I love, you post pretty regularly on Instagram. You also lecture at a lot of conferences. and so You're constantly helping folks with the research that you're coming across, explaining what it means, doing it in a fun and interesting way, but really democratizing access to a lot of the information that many of us may not have come across. You taught me something about vitamin D and melatonin that I did not learn in school, right? And I had three years of nutrition. We need all of us, guys. And I want Dr. Zachariah to be in your corner so that you're constantly learning from her as she's constantly learning these new things and sharing them. One of the things that you're also an expert on and I've seen you lecture about is something called deep prescribing. And selfishly, I would love for you to talk a little bit about SSRIs because I had so many clients in my practice who had depression, had anxiety, tried to get off an SSRI before they saw me and reported that they had some pretty serious side effects. And this is actually like becoming a commonly discussed topic. Can you chat with us about what you know about this topic and what works? I think that one of the reasons that this topic has gained so much popularity is I think a couple of years ago, a paper came out reviewing the potential benefit of SSRIs and something close to 40% of individuals reported not having any benefit SSRIs. And the reviewers Basically, their statement was, we need to reevaluate this mechanism of just addressing serotonin as a driver of depression. If anybody has ever suffered with depression or loved somebody who has depression, you know that it could be all-consuming and it could feel like it's coming at you from multiple directions. So it makes sense to me that this one neurotransmitter wouldn't be the end of the story when it comes to drivers of depression and mental health. I think we owe it to those folks that are suffering with depression to really start zooming out. And there's multiple mechanisms that the literature talks about. The biggest one, I would say the biggest source of information that we have is the gut-brain connection and how much there is that connects the way that the gut works with the brain. Approximately 80% of people who have IBS also report to have depression symptoms and vice versa. So that tells us that there is a huge connection between how you feel in your head and how you feel in your gut. And there has been some evidence that when somebody is experiencing more aggressive bouts of IBS or uh, GI symptoms, they tend to report higher amounts of depressive episodes as well. There is a strong connection there that we're still trying to explore. There's some interesting research on maybe some of the microbiome drivers to that. There's also local production of neurotransmitters that acts like a domino effect that signals back to the brain and essentially tells us how we should feel. There's also the HPA access that has multiple ways that it innervates to our GI. There's bi-directional highway that basically goes from our head down to our gut that's constantly communicating back and forth. When there's issues in the gut, 
it totally makes sense that it's going to impact the way that we think, that we feel, and we perceive our environment. People tend to say, I trust my gut or I follow my gut instincts. It's true. It's because a lot of the way we perceive our environment actually goes through that complex, that bi-directional highway between our gut and our brain. We make more serotonin in our gut than in our brain, right? Absolutely. And one of the theories as to why serotonin, serotonin reuptake inhibitors don't work for everybody is because they're not crossing over the blood-brain barrier into the brain. They're impacting the serotonin in your gut, but they're not necessarily crossing over and impacting how you feel in your brain. Add to that other factors like inflammation, for example. Add to that environmental factors like toxins, pesticides, heavy metals, etc. that also can drive depression from multiple angles. You put all those things together along with stress and our resilience and ability to cope with our environment. All of that starts to impact our health outcomes when it comes to our mental health. That said, a lot of folks either don't feel like they get enough of symptom relief by taking SSRI. The side effects are just not worth it for them as a result. And very often, and I remember this from my first day as an intern, as a pharmacist, they just saw me, they didn't want to take their SSRIs anymore. They didn't want to take their antidepressants. They didn't want to take these medications. They didn't feel like themselves on it. For those people, again, there are genetic factors. There is choosing the right therapy. There's environmental factors that are working against them, GI factors, et cetera, that we have to take into consideration. But for those people, it makes sense to me to help them wean off of their medication because suddenly discontinuing an SSRI can cause them to have rebound effects that then make them feel worse, can trigger another depressive episode, or can make them feel like a failure, frankly, because they just don't know why they're not feeling good. There are some organizations that have created guidelines on tapering SSRIs and there's specific steps that you can take in order to safely get somebody off the SSRIs. They include reducing the dose over the course of several weeks, cutting it in by 75% or half, and taking it step by step until you're finally fully off the medication. And I think those guidelines can be really useful. And where I like to put a little bit more of a functional twist is to layer on top of that other approaches that start to address some of the other drivers of depression. While we're getting them off the SSRI, we're leaning on modulating some of these other drivers like inflammation, the microbiome, digestion, nutrition, and environmental factors, as well as providing them with some of the coping mechanisms and the tools like resetting their circadian rhythm, improving their sleep, making sure that they have tools to manage their stress and their environment at the same time as we taper them off their medication. That way, when they finally cross that finish line and they're off the medication, hopefully they're feeling better than they did at baseline. When you're thinking about some of those other things that you would do, you mentioned coping strategies. Talk to folks at home who might be thinking, my doctor didn't talk to me about any of that. How would they start to find out what else they can be doing? I'm not going to talk as much about some of the psychosocial coping strategies because that can get one out of my scope and two can get a little bit complicated. And I hope that you're able to find a clinician, a therapist that is familiar with and can really help support and guide you on some of those practices. But let's talk a little bit about some of the interventions that we can leverage that can help to offset and support mood. Let's start with the basics. Let's start with nutrition, stabilizing blood sugar and making sure that you have a nutriently repleted diet can be a great starting point, making sure that you're getting anti-inflammatory fats in your diet, 
making sure that you're reducing processed foods and that you're eating high fiber foods and getting adequate protein. These are super basic interventions. And what's super interesting is that there have been studies that looked at Mediterranean style diets. Actually, the SMILES trial is the name of the study that specifically looked at a Mediterranean style diet. And it had two groups, one that followed diet and got coaching and one that didn't. And there were vast improvements in the group that was following the Mediterranean style diet. We didn't even have to make a very specific depression diet to see improvements. We just had them follow the basic tenets of a Mediterranean diet. And that's because the Mediterranean diet has a lot of anti-inflammatory foods and nutrients in it. It's high in fiber. It has the right kinds of anti-inflammatory fats and it has the right balance of the macronutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates Mm -hmm. to help to improve blood sugar levels, improve insulin resistance, and reduce inflammation, support detoxification. So that is one foundational thing that I think often gets skipped in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times Mm -hmm. the prescription for the SSRI goes out, but there's no time or education around how to follow diet that can support depression. Another aspect of this is supporting the gut health and the microbiome. There's specific strains of bacteria that have been studied that can help to reduce depression. Leveraging those probiotic supplements could be a really great strategy. Again, not everybody can afford or can access these supplements. Just simply focusing on interventions that improve the microbiome. That includes, again, a high fiber diet, lots of color, eating the rainbow. I talk about that a lot because the polyphenols and the diversity of that food when you eat the rainbow can really help to balance out the microbiome and increase the production of those healthy bacteria while we reduce the overproduction of some of the bacteria that might be driving some of the inflammation. It can also help to support a healthy gut and reduce intestinal permeability. Ultimately, getting that balance of bacteria through food has a much longer, more sustainable impact anyway. That could go a long way in terms of having sustained outcomes. And then the third piece that we can focus on is thinking about the big one, the stress drivers. We live in a society where stress is such a major driver of a lot of our chronic health conditions. Frankly, it's sort of the elephant in the room when it comes to our conversations, when it comes to health, because a lot of times there are things that we can't help. There are things that I tell my patients, I can't make your boss stop being demanding and annoying. I can't make your email stop dinging. I can't make your notifications on your phone slow down. But hopefully we can start to implement some strategies to start to find ways to maybe restructure or rebalance our life in a way that improves or reduces our exposure to those stressors. And as our resilience goes up, our ability to deal and manage with those stressors goes up. Itself, stress can also drive some of the gut issues and some of the dysbiosis and intestinal permeability that then drives some of the inflammation. And it becomes this cycle. I would be remiss if I didn't mention focusing on stress and figuring out how to slowly chip away at those triggers, how to have those hard conversations, how to use your network and your community to find better ways to address some of those stressors and those drivers and hopefully build more resilience. I really appreciate what you're saying, which sounds like a lot of the ways that you help people tolerate a taper is to go slow and follow these guidelines that you've mentioned that really just help people reduce them over time rather than trying to discontinue them immediately. But it sounds like you're bringing in a ton of other treatments that we know work for depression on a holistic level. Now you're not just reliant on an SSRI, which you're now tapering, 
but instead you're bringing alongside a lot of other supports. And when I hear you talk about eating the Mediterranean diet or paying attention to diet, it makes sense to me because I know we make serotonin from B6, B12, folate, and tryptophan, which tryptophan is an amino acid that has to come from protein. If you are not eating enough of that, you cannot make enough serotonin, which means when you reduce that SSRI, you're going to feel it because your brain doesn't have enough serotonin to begin with. All of this is based on science. And I love when you bring in the studies. Thank you so much for doing that. Can I add something else to, you just made me think going back, we talked a little bit about pain and inflammation and I talked about inflammation as a driver for depression. But what's interesting is that tryptophan, depending on the microbiome and the species that are dominant, can metabolize instead of to serotonin to neuroinflammatory metabolite called quinolate. And that could drive not only more inflammation, so it's almost like doubling down on that inflammatory pathway. But we also know that patients with depression are more sensitive to pain. We've seen this also with folks that have fibromyalgia. It's super interesting when you start to layer all these pieces together and see how they overlap with each other. And again, how modulating certain aspects can help us to address these more deliberate pathways. The approach really is to your point finding the overlap and the opportunity to bring these concepts into synergy rather than thinking just one intervention at a time. And again, screening and doing it in a way that's safe and it's going to reduce potential side effects or harm. And bringing it full circle back to what you talked about in the beginning, which is how do we make NSAIDs work better and reduce inflammation and reduce pain? It sounds like this plan does it all. And nutrition-wise, this makes sense to me because there's really only 80 to 100 nutrients that make or break human health. And it's not that many when you think about it. And when you take a nutrient, when you get enough of a nutrient, it usually improves multiple things in your body because your body reuses nutrients for multiple purposes. It's going to use tryptophan in a way that it's going to help you make serotonin. But whatever you're eating that tryptophan with is also coming with other amino acids and other B vitamins that are critical for making other things in your body, including like your muscles, right? Literally, like the stuff your body is made of. I really appreciate your holistic approach and how you just help people heal from the inside out, look at every aspect of their health. Is there anything that you want to leave our audience with today as they think about overhauling their own medicine cabinet or starting on a journey themselves where they're looking beyond just a prescription and starting to include more lifestyle factors? Absolutely. One of my favorite phrases is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I think that really embodies my passion for integrative medicine and for collaboration. My number one, if you walk away with nothing else, I think you can see it woven into my approach and my obsession with synergy. It's find your team of clinicians and stick to them and make sure that you're communicative with them. Not every clinician is going to bill every aspect. Your pharmacist that might be billing your medications and dispensing to you your medication may not be the same clinician that is helping you to manage your diet, may not be the same clinician that's helping you to find drug-induced nutrient depletions, may not be the same that is potentially giving you a nutraceutical or recommending advanced laboratory testing. But it's essential that we communicate. And look, our healthcare system doesn't make it very easy for different clinicians to communicate with each other. And that's okay. But that means that you have to be that much more communicative, that you are disclosing 
who you're working with, what you're working on. And if a clinician does not accept that, then it's time for a new clinician that is open to collaboration. And I want to encourage my fellow clinician, my fellow healthcare providers, let's start thinking how we can work together and how we can find our areas of passion and areas of interest and our specialties so that we can find each other and help support patients and refer to each other so that ultimately our patients are best served. And we need to put down any fear or ego and really start to advocate for our patient's best interests. I'm not going to be the clinician that does everything for my patient, but if you're one of those, I encourage you to reach out to me, find me on LinkedIn, find me on Instagram. I'd love to have you in my network. Where can people find you? I am Foodie Pharmacist on most platforms. That's Foodie Pharmacist, but it's spelled with an F, F-A-R, not P-H. And you can also find me at larazacharia.com. It's just my first name and my last name. That's my website. And from there, you can navigate over to most of my social media. I am the most active on Instagram and LinkedIn these days. I do a little bit of TikToking here and there. And I've recently gotten on thread. We'll see how that goes. (laughs) You have to keep me posted. I have no idea how to use that. I'm fascinated though. I'm fascinated. And if you're a practitioner, I want to put a plug. Dr. Zachariah does a lot of educational events. You were at the IFM conference a couple of weeks ago doing a presentation for physicians. You educate other pharmacists. I'm very thankful that you're doing that. And I want to echo what Dr. Zachariah said earlier, guys. You are the only person who sticks with you on your health journey for life. That's it. And you're going to meet a lot of amazing professionals along the way. And you should have a team because no one knows it all. I highly encourage you to start to, if you don't have an integrative pharmacist or somebody who specializes in nutrition on your team, get someone on your team. And it can start with just a phone call or a DM to Dr. Zacharia. Or if you're not in the States and you need to work with somebody who's local, find a nutrition expert, find an herbal expert, find your pharmacist and start to use all of them together to mimic this plan that we've talked to you about based on the evidence truly works for folks. No matter how it looks, you will be better from using this functional medicine and holistic approach. Thank you, Dr. Zacharia, for being with us today and we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to be here and I appreciate you and the listeners for tuning in. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.